You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We're going to read two different passages this morning, Mark chapter 11 and Isaiah chapter 56. And then we're going to end with communion. We're going to end with Lord's Supper this morning. The Lord is calling a people unto himself, a people, not just an individual. Yes, the gospel is for an individual. The Lord has pursued you. He, he plucked you out of the miry clay, out of the, out of the ash heap of your desperate situation to prop you up with princes, as Psalm 113 so beautifully says. But it's not just you individually the Lord has, is pursuing. He is pursuing a people to himself, to be a people joining with him and join together in this sacred, mysterious unity with their attention towards the Lord, to be a people that meet with God. And uh, I want us to look at this passage in, in Mark chapter 11 because Jesus speaks strongly in a table-flipping fashion. He speaks passionately with zeal um, regarding his passion for, for the church, for community, the sacredness of what we have together. Yes, there's something so sacred about you in the secret place, in your own prayer closet, in your own time with the Lord, in your bedroom or your living room that's beautiful and that's needed and we champion that all day long. But there is also something very sacred and in which the Lord is very passionate about in the corporate sense, in the community sense of what we experience and go after locked hand in hand, locked arm in arm together as a church family. And uh, Jesus is so passionate about it that, that he flipped tables. Like he, he wanted to stop all of the, the, the mechanized, dead, religious, uh, you know, superficialities of the day. He, he, didn't, he didn't mind offending some people um, because he was so passionate about a people being humbly devoted to one another, submitted to one another, and submitted to his purposes on the earth. He knew that's how the Father would be glorified. That's how the love and the goodness of God would truly be seen in the context of a people loving each other while they love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the Lord's been, I feel like, calling us back to that. Not that that's been a foreign message to this church family, but I just feel like over the last few years, the Lord has been calling us back to a simpler faith in community together. I remember a number of years ago, actually when Paige was uh, on staff as the worship director, we were having a meeting in my office just talking about a heart of wanting to establish this church family back in the, like the, the New Testament ways of prayer. You know, as you read the accounts in Acts chapter two, Acts chapter four, about the day-to-day life of the early church, since they devoted themselves as to fellowship and to prayer, the breaking of bread to the apostles' teaching. It seems like such a, a foreign concept in this busy, like nine to five world that we live in. Actually, it's a world that never sleeps, you know? Like our lives are just so jam-packed that we don't oftentimes have time for each other. And so we, like our hearts started to really ache for a church being grounded in prayer, but we felt like we didn't have time for it. We didn't have time to stop and, and lock arms together in prayer. And so... It's just a sad excuse. You always have time for what's most important. We give ourselves to something. And, 
And so we, we just said, let's just, let's just start doing it. Even if it's not the most convenient time, let's just start doing it. And that's where Wednesday afternoon prayer times has really started. Isn't that little uh, meeting in my office was let's just start meeting. Even if it's not, even if it's not the most convenient time for everybody as like a, a stake in the ground for our church, we are going to be a church of prayer. And it's been beautiful to see the Lord honor that midweek time of prayer. And I believe so much is birthed in that time that we devote to uh, seeking the Lord's heart for our city. Um, it's been amazing to see him, him honor that. And so I believe the Lord is calling a people to join with him. Not for him to join and bless us, but for bless our thing, but for us to join with what he is doing. That's only going to come through a people devoted to him in the place of prayer. And I don't want that word prayer to be a stumbling block for you because some of you may think that's just a special calling for the you know, the, the white-haired um, in our church or something, or for the ultra-spiritual, or for the spiritual elite. Um, that's not the type of prayer I'm talking about. I'm talking about the call upon every single Christian, the call upon every single child of God to be in fellowship and communion with God, to, to meet with God and to, to be in friendship with Him. That is prayer. And so... Um, that's what God is calling this church to be established in, is, is in a people that are devoted to meeting with him. And sometimes that happens in a very structured way, like midweek prayer or Sunday mornings, and sometimes that happens in the coming and going of our life as we do life together. But in Mark chapter 11, let's look at this, uh, starting in verse 15. This is towards the end of Jesus' ministry. His eyes are set on the cross. His eyes are set on the Father's purposes for him to give himself, give his life on the cross for you and for me. And so there is the, there's this acceleration of zeal in Jesus. And, um, and so he walks, into the, <laughs> he walks into the temple with a little fire in his eyes here. And I want us to catch this. And so, and they came to Jerusalem, verse 15. This is not on the screen, I apologize. Isaiah 56 will be on the screen, but um, you either have to look this up in your Bible and follow on or listen along on the following, or sorry, as they came to Jerusalem, verse 15, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought in the, brought in the, who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So just imagine this scene. These people are just going about what they do every single day as this kind of machine of the commercialization of the temple uh, uh, world has kind of amped as, as magnified, has increased over the years, over the decades. Jesus walks in and disrupts it all. These people, who've, they've made a life out of it. Maybe they felt like this is their calling. This is their fulfillment of, of, what, of the Lord's purposes, whatever, however they've spiritualized it or, or justified it in their minds, however they've been deceived or um, been turned into, into error. Jesus disrupts that all. And he stops them all, stops them all in their tracks. He flips over tables and he says this in verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He knew the heart of the father was for a people to host the presence of God, for this place to be categorized as a place 
of prayer, of meeting with God. And they have turned it into something altogether other. They've turned it into a den of robbers. They've turned it into a way of benefiting themselves, of lining their own pockets, of kind of suiting their own desires. And Jesus would have none of it, none of it. He wanted them to clearly understand the heart of the Father. Verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it. They were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Now, turn, to your, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 56. I want us to look further at what Jesus was actually quoting. Jesus was quoting the prophet Isaiah, you know, marking the beginning of an age where what, what the prophet Isaiah prophesied about would be fulfilled which just gets my heart so excited that we live in this day when the things that the prophets talked about, we live in the days when those things are being fulfilled. Like we should live every day with this sense of expectation, anticipation, excitement, giddiness, because we live in that day that the prophets foresaw. They they saw, you know, although it seemed dim, although it seemed so distant, we live in these days, these unprecedented ages, uh, days. Jesus is zealous for, for a people to himself. If church should be about anything else, it should be about meeting with God. Amen? Jesus was passionate about this concept, you know, so much so that he in another version in the book of John, when he clears the temple, he talks about how he's gonna destroy the temple and how he'll raise it to life again. Talking about his own death and his own resurrection and prophesying about the age to come when his body, the temple, that's you and I, would be raised to life through his resurrection life. And body implies parts. It doesn't imply individuality or singularity. It implies all of these parts working together in unison for the Lord's higher purposes. That's what God is so passionate about. And we have to get this right. Samuel Chadwick said this, I came across this quote earlier this week, the church always fails at the point of self-confidence. When the church is run on the same lines as a circus, there may be crowds, but there is no Shekinah, meaning the glory. There's there's, There's no evidence of the goodness of God. That is why prayer is the test of faith and the secret of power. So we have to get this right. We have to get right where the Lord is aiming us. Otherwise, we can fill our lives, even in a church sense, even in a religious sense, with a whole lot of busyness. And that's what you see in the temple. It's like all these people like feeling pretty good about the things they're doing. Hey, I'm a part of the Lord's work. I'm selling these pigeons, these people, so they can, they can bring a sacrifice and offering to the Lord I'm exchanging money. Yeah, I'm making a profit off it, but I'm exchanging this money so, so, so these people can do commerce and, and worship God. They, they have this way of justifying. We fill our lives with these things and the whole time missing the Lord's aim for, for us. This is just a funny story. It's coming to me, actually. Um, a funny story of a vacation I recently took with my family and 
You know, part of vacation is understanding where you start and where you end. And I'd planned this vacation. My wife doesn't like planning vacations. I enjoy planning vacations. And that's my, like my engineering mind. I just like to plan all the details and make sure we got everything in, in order. Well, I totally missed it on this last vacation. And somehow I missed the date, the end date of our vacation. Like somehow it had, the date had moved in my mind. And so we were actually scheduled to leave a day later than what I thought we had, what, we, what I thought and what we actually scheduled our, our planes for, uh, what I thought we had scheduled our, our flights for. And so we had had an amazing vacation. We felt like it was the best vacation we had ever had. And, and you're, you're like, your hearts are full because you've had amazing times together, but you're tired because you, you went at it for a week or whatever. And I, we got into our bed that night, what I thought was the last night of our vacation. I went through our emails and, and fortunately I saw an email from the airline and it said, we were not flying out the next day. We were actually flying out 24 hours later. And, uh, and all of a sudden, because we're in that season of life where life picks up right when you get back home, like I had to scramble to figure out what, how we were gonna make this work because plans were already in motion for right when we got home at the end of our vacation. So we, we, can, we can start and end and completely miss it in the church world. We can, we can feel like we're, we're going along, we're, we're doing things right, we're having an amazing time and completely miss the end target of where the Lord is taking us. We have to make sure we know what the Lord's heart is, what, where his purposes are aimed. What is at the bullseye of the Lord's heart? I feel like we catch this in Isaiah 56 as we explore the, the greater context of what Jesus is referring to. Let's just look at this closely. Isaiah chapter 56, verse six, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord. So the prophet Isaiah is talking about a day and age when the gates, the gates of Israel, the gates of covenant would be open to all people. That's really good news for you and for me. For non-Jews, the Lord had his covenant people in Israel and he's speaking to Isaiah that there's coming a day when foreigners would be drawn unto himself. They would be invited in to the inner courts, into the Holy of Holies, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. Verse seven, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. That is what Jesus had in his mind as he sat there in the temple, as after he had caused a disruption and flipped the tables and stopped everyone in their tracks. That's what his fiery eyes were fixed upon, was this vision of this future day when the outcasts and the foreigners and the Jews, they'd all be gathered under the, unto the mountain of God to meet with God. So I want, us to, I want us to break this down. I want us to understand what these people are like and then what they're promised. Actually, I'm gonna flip that around. First, I want us to, understand what we're promised in being a people devoted to the Lord, being a people described as a house of prayer, a people that Jesus wouldn't come in here and flip the tables and disrupt everything, a people that Jesus would be drawn to, that he would smile upon. 
This is what's promised to those people. It says that he will bring us to his holy mountain. To, to Israel, the mountain of God is equated with meeting with him, meeting with God himself. There's throughout this story of Israel, this, this repeated theme of people ascending a mountain to meet with God. All the way back to the, the first encounter of worship in Genesis 22, when, when Abraham climbs Mount Moriah to sacrifice, unbeknownst to him, uh, you know, sacrificing uh, what he thinks is gonna be his son Isaac, but the Lord provides a sacrifice in the ram. Ever since that very first encounter of worship, the Lord has been drawing this picture, using this, this picture of a mountain to be this place where people meet with God. And if church is, is anything else, it is that. It's the people of God meeting with God. Later in, in the book of Exodus then, Moses is on Mount Horeb and he says it's the mountain of God. And as you fast forward then to the ministry of Jesus, as he's talking in John chapter four to the, to the woman at the well, she's in her mind fixated on the mountain that the Samaritans assume is holy versus you know, Mount Moriah where the, the, the Jews, the purebred Jews believe that is holy in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. There's coming a day when the true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. That's what the holy mountain captures. Is our eternal inheritance as worshipers, as ones who meet with God. And that's why we hold our time of worship together as so sacred. That's why we regard it as so sacred. Because it's us meeting with God. It's, it's not Christian karaoke. It's not just the lead up to, to my amazing sermon. It's not, it's not just something we've always done historically. It is us meeting with God, us declaring his greatness, us adoring him and him coming because he's, to, to, he's drawn to that sort of praise and that worship. And he promises that to a house of prayer. He promises that to his house. He'll bring us to his holy mountain. That's what I'm hungry for. That's what I desire. Secondly, he, he, he promises us and he'll make us joyful in his house of prayer. More and more the Lord is revealing this to my heart. The fullness of joy, and Joe quoted it earlier, John, or, uh, Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. In the presence of God, there's fullness of joy, and at his right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. That is where our heart is, is full, is satisfied, it's in the presence of God. And he promises that to a house of prayer. Everything else, and it's great for us to admit this, everything else will leave us empty. And that's why oftentimes, even in the church world, we can run ourselves ragged and we can still feel empty, this void in our hearts. Because we're not finding the simplicity and purity of true heart worship, of just looking at him and him fulfilling the joys of our hearts. To me, Psalm 27 is, is forever like seared on my heart. The fact that King David you know, the most, the wealthiest man in Israel of his time, leading Israel through the golden age, 
says, this one thing I seek. There's nothing I desire more than to seek the Lord in his house, to gaze upon his beauty. That's what, that's what King David says, because he knows there, there's joy promised to him in the house of prayer. Thirdly, he promises us that our offerings and our sacrifices will be accepted. You're, you're saying, well, we don't offer sacrifices. We don't offer offerings to the Lord. That's already been done for us in Jesus. It, it has. But we have the privilege and the honor of giving offerings and sacrifices of worship to the Lord and of our own lives to the Lord. This is true worship. Our lives are a living sacrifice before the Lord. And he promises that 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 living sacrifice placed on the altar on a daily basis will be accepted. Why? Well, this is the the age-old test of the heart. I mean, think all the way back to Genesis chapter four, Cain and Abel. Abel's offering is accepted. Cain's is rejected. You know, and it just enrages Cain to the point of murdering his own brother. Why, why is that? Well, it seems to be that, that Cain just kind of gave the, 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 the leftovers or the kind of the, the overflow. This is what I have. This is the, the fruit of my, my labor from the ground. And he gives it, to, gives it to the Lord, where it specifically says that Abel gave the first fruits of his offering to the Lord. There was something just even just innately about, like the, the essence of Abel's offering was beautiful to the Lord because it was a true indication of his own heart. This is my best because it's my first. It's not just what I had. This is, this is my all. This is a, a clear declaration of my all to the Lord. So he wants the best sacrifices of our heart and he promises that will be accepted. He honors the widow's might. He honors the alabaster jar of perfume broken at his feet even if it's misunderstood by people, even if it offends somebody, the Lord will accept it and will call it beautiful. Fourthly, the Lord promises that he'll gather others to himself. This is actually the engine of the mission of the church. The engine of the mission of the church is his presence, is his sweetness, is a a joy-filled people enamored by his goodness in love with him. It's from there that we can actually love the world well, And he promises us that he will gather others to himself. The church will be a place where people are drawn to himself, but it won't be through the ways of the world. It won't be by building a big organization through human ways. The engine of it will be him. And that's what's continued to draw my heart year after year as the Lord just continues to recalibrate me on a continual basis. He's the one who's building his church. That's a supernatural thing. And as soon as we as humans begin to tinker with it, it gets wonky quick. And too many people get hurt in church and and misunderstand the gospel and misunderstand what God is truly like because men and women, we begin to tinker with things that are of the spirit and they're not of man. But he promises us this type of church won't be a church just unto itself. It will gather others to himself. So what kind of people is he promising this to? Because I just want us to make sure we understand this. Verse six, it's those who join themselves to the Lord. Those who willfully join themselves to the Lord, which is always a response. This is not something you initiate. 
It's not like your, your logical, um, you know, the, the logical path that you brought yourself on to bring yourself to the Lord. It's you responding to the Lord's invitation upon your life. And that word actually joining, that Hebrew word actually refers to adoption. So those who willfully embrace the identity of being grafted and adopted into the family of God. This is the good news of Jesus, that we were outsiders, but God adopted us in. We were orphans, but he chose us. Even before the creation of time, he chose us. He predestined us for adoption. I believe many people keep God at arm's length you know, until they're, they're cleaned up or because they have all sorts of shame tormenting them because the decisions of the past, you know, wrongs, they've sins of the past or where they've come from, all sorts of things that kind of stack up that keep us at arm's length from, from the Lord. But the essence of the gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and he invites us to come and embrace fully like the radical scandalous nature of the adoption that's available to us in the cross, that's available to us through his death and through his resurrection. It's those sorts of people who even though it doesn't make sense because of where they came from and, and they know where they've been and what they've done, it doesn't make sense, but they embrace it. Even though it may cost them something, even though people may misunderstand them, they embrace their identity as a son, as a daughter, as grafted into the family of God with gratitude. It's those sorts of people those who join themselves to the Lord. Secondly, it says those who minister to him. This is still verse six, Isaiah 56, verse six. Those who minister to him. You say, what? Minister to the Lord? Isn't it about him ministering to me or pastor ministering to me or something? Well, here scripture tells us that these ones minister to the Lord. He's referring to this invitation or responsibility upon every child of God to be a priest unto the Lord. There's the priests that were called, these Levites, the one tribe of Israel that was called to, to minister to the Lord in his presence. Well, in this age that Isaiah is prophesying about, he's talking about a day when foreigners, foreigners, even foreigners, not, not just the priests and not just Jews, but foreigners would be invited in to minister to the Lord, to take on these priestly duties, to worship the Lord, to love on him, to minister to him. And you'll never move forward in your walk with God or your understanding even of the joy-filled Christian life until you embrace your calling to minister to the Lord. Ian Bounds said that the holy and fervent flame in the soul awakens the interests of heaven attracts the attention of God and places at the disposal of those who exercise it the exhaustless riches of divine grace. And so many people walk around their Christian life bored because they don't see God rightly. And it's, it's in the place of worship of actually looking at him and ministering to him that your heart begins to actually flicker with true love. And that's the invitation to every single person, a calling, a responsibility upon every single person. So these people who join themselves, Lord, I'm gonna invite Scott forward to the keys. These people who join themselves to the Lord, who minister to the Lord, thirdly, they love the name of the Lord. They have this submission or this 
recognition of the exalted name of the Lord, which there are many names for the Lord, not because he's like multiple personalities, but because over the ages, he's been revealing what he is like. And Jesus becomes the name above all names. Jesus becomes the ultimate revelation of the Father. Jesus says, if you look at me, you're looking at the Father. And so when we call on the name of Jesus, when we love the name of Jesus, we're embracing and actually submitting ourselves to the full character of God. And so for a Hebrew listener to talk about a person's name is talking about their character, like their, their family heritage, what's spoken over this person. And so when God is revealing his name to us, he's revealing, he's revealing to us what he's like. And these, these ones, these lovers of God will love the name of the Lord. They'll love and devote themselves to embracing in their heart of hearts who he's revealed himself to be. And fourthly, to those who keep Sabbath and do not profane it. You thought I was just gonna leave that one out, right? I refuse to. It's here. So what is Isaiah talking about? He's prophesying to a day where we're not living under the law. What I love about Sabbath and what's captured in it is it precedes the law. It's there, hidden there, in the, not even hidden, it's just there in the creation story. This invitation that God eternally will be inviting us into of resting in him, of being found sufficient and enough in his presence. That is Sabbath rest. And to those who refuse to be enslaved to the grind and the heavy yoke of this world around us, the busy, swirling attractions and, and affections of this world, but rather those who find their sufficiency in Christ and Christ alone. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We have entered into our day of Sabbath. So you can think of all your BC days, your days before Christ, as being like the other six days of the week. You're just working to try to survive through this world. You're just like, how do I make it? Trying to find your value and identity and all these things and trying to work for the opinions and affirmations of people, trying to get the attention of something, somewhere, somehow. And then you encounter Jesus, your Sabbath rest. And you enter into the fullness of being at rest in your soul. And you hear that gentle invitation from Jesus to come and learn from him. Take off that yoke that you've, that you've come to know and you've come to embrace your entire life. Take this yoke upon you. It's easy, it's light. It's my Sabbath yoke. Take that upon yourself. Acknowledge my sufficiency. Acknowledge my grace upon your life, that I am enough. So living in the Sabbath rest of Jesus, I, I, I encourage you to take a Sabbath day. I think that helps center us in that gospel of Sabbath rest, but it's more than a day. It's more than 24 hours. It's living there in our coming and our going. Yes, in our work. Sometimes we do work 50, 60 hours a week. That's fine. We can still work and give ourselves to things in this world and be at rest in our souls. 
if I find it sometimes to, that it's hard to smile or I find myself not singing in my coming and my going, like these little things for myself that I just recognize as signs that my soul is not clinging to Sabbath rest, then we need to stop. And that's what Sabbath means. It means to pause, to cease, to stop. Find your sufficiency in the Lord. What are you running after? You're running after all these other things. Do not profane the Sabbath. Keep Sabbath rest upon your life. Live there. I hope that makes sense. I hope you're tracking with me. I want us to end with communion, but I hope you understood my heart. There's so much promise to us, I feel like, as a church family. So much of what it truly means to be the church, of truly what it means to be in community as the church, the Lord's sacred way of representing himself on the earth in these days. To be a house of prayer. And I, you know, as, a, as like a under shepherd or the chief shepherd, have to continually submit myself to the Lord and say, Lord, would you flip the tables in this place? Or are we part of this company of people? Are we part of this company of people that are joining ourselves to the Lord, ministering to you, loving your name and living in Sabbath rest? Are we? Because the promises are so rich and I don't want to miss out. I, I want the fullness of what the Lord has for us. Amen. Do you want that this morning? I know I'm with a company of people that, that do. If you don't stand to your feet. I, I have an honor. Or it's, it's an honor this morning to actually have my parents here with me or with us this morning. My parents are up here in the, the third row. There's heroes in my life and much of the conviction for being a people of prayer comes from the testimony of my own father. I've shared that at different times, but as the Lord grounds us in what he's spoken, spoken over us, like I can't help but like retrace those formative seeds that he planted in my heart. And I saw in my dad, not a professional minister, because he wasn't, he was a firefighter, but I saw a man with this fiery eye like Jesus devoted to prayer in the local church. And that's why even though we had a messed up family at times, he dragged us kids to prayer meetings on Saturday morning. And I witnessed with my own eyes, even though I couldn't always put words to it, I witnessed with my own eyes the true backbone of the church in the place of prayer. This humble company of people actually becoming the, the, the propelling force in what the Lord was doing. Actually the ones inviting in the wind of the spirit to woo hearts to himself. It is these, this people devoted to the place of prayer. Oh, that we would be a house of prayer. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.